This program features interviews with respected healthcare industry experts on current topics of substantial national importance. Your host for the program is David Intricasso, a DC-based healthcare policy analyst and researcher. We invite you to comment on the program by visiting thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Now, here's David. Welcome to the Healthcare Policy Podcast. I'm the host, David Intracasso. Joining me today is Harvard medical anthropologist Eric Reinhardt to discuss the interrelationship between public health, mask incarceration, and structural racism. Eric, thank you for joining me. Thank you. It's my pleasure to be here. Eric's bio is, of course, posted on the podcast website. On background, over the past four decades, the U.S. prison population has quadrupled to approximately 2 million. With 4.2% of the world's population, the U.S. accounts for roughly 25% of the world's prisoners. African Americans at 13% of the general population account for 34% of the prison population. Much like the effect COVID-19 has had on SNF or skilled nursing facility residents, just published research concluded more than 22% of Medicare beneficiaries who lived in nursing homes died last year. Prisons and jails have also constituted killing fields. This is unsurprising since there's a long history of detention facilities as infectious disease multipliers. Think tuberculosis. Part of the beginning of last year's school year, U.S. prisons and jails accounted for 90 of the 100 worst COVID cluster sites. Those incarcerated in jails and prisons have suffered 5.5 times greater risk of COVID infection and experienced three times the death rate of those not incarcerated. And so-called jail cycling has significantly accounted for COVID infection rates in the general population, moreover, in minority communities. The combination of higher rates of arrest and incarceration have consequently become, as Eric Reinhardt recently stated, both a symptom and cause of public health, cause for poor public health, excuse me, not a solution for it. With me again to discuss how mass incarceration makes us all sick, quote-unquote, as Eric has noted, uh, is again Eric Reinhardt. So with that uh, intro and background, Eric, let's go to your research straight away. Uh, You looked at the relationship between jailing practices and community infections using Cook County jail data. And I will cite all these publications when I post this. You had an article out a year ago in Health Affairs, a research article on this, and then you followed up with a more complete uh, research analysis uh, in a recent uh, Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences uh, article that was published May 10th titled Carceral Community Epidemiology, Structural Racism, and COVID-19 Disparities. So those largely two articles are what we'll discuss here. Generally, let me just ask you, how did you pursue this research? Yeah. Well, some background actually maybe would be please, useful. Sure, please, sure. Because you mentioned that we've seen this kind of phenomena where jails, prisons, other kinds of detention facilities, like immigrant detention facilities in the U.S., for example, have been sites where there have been major epidemic outbreaks, and they're nearly impossible to control in these kinds of contexts. And we've seen this for hundreds of years, actually, from at least the 1400s forward, this something called gall fever, um, and another, another phenomenon where there are you know, major outbreaks. What was noted some time ago was that these outbreaks don't just affect incarcerated people and staff these facilities. They very quickly spill over into communities. And this is especially true in the U.S. with, our, as you mentioned, our enormous carceral system, uh, which houses a, a huge number of people, over 2 million people. And in jails, 
the jails in the U.S. at any given time typically hold about 600 to 700,000 people. And most of those people only stay in jails for a number of days. The average turnover in jails, or the turnover of the population, is about 55% per week, uh, according to the Bureau of Justice statistics. So that's a massive flow of people. You have a, about 11 million different admission release cycles. So in addition to 420,000 roughly prison guards in the U.S., you also have this constant flow of people who are detained, exposed to very high-risk scenarios for disease transmission, and then released back into communities because they haven't been convicted of crimes. They shouldn't be incarcerated. But you know, following this exposure, they then potentially present a significant risk to other people. But the reason I got into this, actually, is because for several years I've been teaching with Paul Farmer and Salman Khashoggi, who are both mm-hmm. infectious disease physicians and anthropologists at Harvard. And we've, we see, teach a, a series of case studies in global public health. And one of the case studies that we teach is the post-Soviet TB epidemic in Russia, where, you know, after the fall of the Soviet Union, for the next decade and a half, you had exploding TB rates, rates and MDR-TB, multidrug-resistant TB in particular. And it turned out that a major driver of this national epidemic was the prison system. Now, at that time, post-Soviet Russia, the incarceration rate there was quite high. It has since 2001 more than halved. At that time, the incarceration rate was pretty close, actually, to the current U.S. incarceration rate. And you could not control TB transmission in these facilities. 25% of all new cases in 2001, for example, in Russia, documented cases, were in carceral facilities. Nobody knows how many thousands of cases were uh, causing communities by spread from these facilities, but it's, there's no question there's a huge number. So Paul and, and Salman, with Partners in Health, their organization, they were brought in, they requested uh, to go into Siberia and try to figure out how can we treat MDR-TB, which at that time, with available resources in most Russian contexts, was basically thought not treatable. But you had to treat it because you had a huge exploding epidemic. So I've taught this case study with them for years, thinking about how, as Salman puts it, carceral facilities function as epidemiological pumps mm-hmm. that that affect surrounding areas and with infectious disease, not just immediately surrounding areas, but eventually whole regions, whole national contexts and international contexts. So when the pandemic began, and I had done ethnographic research, I've been a, an ethnographer in Chicago for for many, many years, and I had done some ethnographic research in Cook County Jail. So I was familiar with the physical spaces, with the processing spaces. I knew how they crowded people through these facilities, how people stood for hours waiting to be processed and admitted, subjected to psychiatric interviews, this kind of thing, and that there would basically be no effective way to prevent transmission during these processing periods when people haven't been tested. And also at that time, there wasn't, this is early, last spring, early in the pandemic, we didn't have sufficient testing. So they weren't, you know, the period I studied in this health affairs article you're talking about, March of 2020, 3% of people in the facility were even given tests. So the, the, you know, the positives, it's kind of an irrelevant numbers. We really have no idea. So I realized when this began that, okay, people pass through this facility. This facility, because of the way it's constructed, not entirely the fault of its administrators or the sheriff here, it, it is going to be a site where you're going to have really rapid transmission and multiplication of SARS-CoV-2 and then these people go back out into their communities, as they should, but they probably should never have been incarcerated. So I thought this would be a big kind of epicenter of spread in Chicago, and it turned out to be. So I thought, okay, I, I was waiting for this actually to come out in the press, but nobody was writing about this. They're talking about the rights of people who are detained in jails and prisons, which is really important, and compassionate release measures, people are pushing for that. 
But there, but this population level effect of how these facilities put the entire country at risk was missing from the discourse. So I thought, okay, if I can do this limited study, because I didn't have perfect data, nobody does still now, maybe it, it's for a conversation. So that's how I started uh, thinking about this beginning of that study. Okay, thank you. I did see, and I'll note this, you co-authored a, a short piece in New England Journal with Paul Farmer, and that was out recently, April 29. Uh, vaccination plus decarceration. Uh, we'll get to that. I should say, um, uh, for those who don't know, uh, Paul Farmer, in fact, I think I read probably every one of his volumes. Uh, I will note here, probably the one that may be most relevant is maybe his most noted work is Pathologies of Power. Uh, but let's, let's go on. I did appreciate your point about uh, the number of those in jail who are waiting trial is a, yeah. is a significant number. As you said, that, you know, you have folks who are part of the system were, you know, innocent at, at, at that point. Um, and then you did note, and I'll just make, to reinforce or further this point, uh, somewhere I noted in your uh, work, you cited that um, peer countries only incarcerate on average 15% of the rate the U.S. does. Yeah. Uh, so to give you further, uh, make that point. Um, Cook County, you did note too, just to, is, is a, Cook County Jails is a good um, uh, research site because it has a it, it is the largest or one of the largest uh, jails in the country. Correct? It's the largest single. People dispute this a little bit, but it seems to be, as far as I can tell, the largest single site jail in the country. It's the third largest jail system. Like L.A., for example, has a larger jail system okay. by population. Yeah. Okay. Let me. Um, uh, so this was a descriptive study. Uh, there was one interesting aspect to this that. Uh, I came to my mind before I actually read, uh, again, the proceedings uh, paper, and you'd actually note this, I think, in the health affairs under a limitation, and that's this issue of possible reverse causality. I realize this is a, uh, a research methods question, um, yeah. but can, I thought that was quite interesting. And so can you explain for the listener what is reverse causality? And my guess is that your research has evolved to the point where you think that that's not a concern any longer. That's correct. With the follow-up paper, I think it's that that should be pretty clearly put to rest. But maybe to, to explain to the listener why that would be relevant here, I, I haven't really described the study properly first, so maybe I'll just do that to okay. give context. And so the study, it's a very simple design. It's all that we could really do at the time, which is we had records given to us by the jail. They're required by federal law to comply with Freedom of Information Act requests. And fortunately, the sheriff here in Chicago, Tom Dart, does typically comply with those a lot of administrators around the country do not. They force you to sue them. Most people don't do that. So anyway, to his credit, he complies with these requests. So we got release data from the jail. Everybody that's released from the beginning of 2020 to the date they fulfilled the request, which went into early April. We then had at that time access to cross-sectional COVID data, COVID case data in the state of Illinois by zip code. Shockingly, Nationally, this data is impossible to get. There are very few jurisdictions that make publicly available or maybe even seem to collect, which is shocking to me, zip code level COVID data. You can get county level COVID data, but not zip. So this has hampered our, our attempts to do this kind of work at a national level. But so we had the zip code COVID data and we had the zip code of residence of everybody who was released from the jail in the month of mm -hmm. March. And what we did is we 
you know, put these together. We control for a bunch of demo, different demographic factors like public transit utilization rates, population density, poverty rates, racial demographics, other things that we know are associated with higher, we knew at that time, were or were likely to be associated with higher COVID rates. And then we looked at how, uh, how much of the COVID burden in Illinois could be independently, once you control for all those factors, independently correlated with passage to the jail. Now, if you don't control just the raw bivariate correlation, it was over 50% of cases could be tied to the jail. If you control for all those other factors, it was uh, 16% of cases in both Chicago and statewide in Illinois were independently associated in our study with passage through the jail. Now, to put that also in a little bit broader context, over 100,000 people on average are detained in Cook County Jail every single year and passed through. So this is a, this is a large number of mm-hmm. people. Um, reverse causality. So this came up because the what we had at that time was only cross-sectional data, one day zip code COVID data. If we had every single day, then we'd have longitudinal data. We could rule out some other doubts that might emerge in relationship to this study. At the time, we couldn't. So the sheriff, I had thought he would receive this study uh, and be in support of it. Because this is a reformist sheriff in Chicago, in Cook County, Tom Dart. He's made his name. He has a very kind of high-profile political presence here. He's made his name through reforms and through trying to bring greater services to communities, rely less on jailing. I thought, okay, he he should welcome this study because this shows that he, as an administrator of this massive jail, is in an impossible position when you have an epidemic. Mm -hmm. What is he supposed to do? How can he prevent transmission? You can't. I mean, you could mitigate it to some degree. But in this kind of facility, you're never going to eliminate transmission. Um, and you're in a hugely vulnerable position, especially when you don't have adequate testing like we don't have with a novel pathogen like SARS-CoV-2 last spring. Uh, so I thought he could use this to say, look, governor, look, mayor, you need to work with me to quickly decarcerate this facility. Instead, his reception was um, hostile, unfortunately. This is perhaps my due in part to my own experience working with policymakers. I didn't prep him, perhaps, for receiving this. Um his office and kind of partners of his around the city discredited the study or tried to discredit the study uh, to media by saying that this study, all it's showing is effectively reverse causality. Right, right. What, it, what it's showing is that these neighborhoods where more people are arrested, more people are incarcerated, they just, independent of the jail, they just have higher COVID rates for other reasons. Mm-hmm. Even though we control for the vast majority of the reasons or other reasons we could think of why they might have those. So that, that control made that multivariate controls made us think that, okay, this is probably pretty good what we're looking at, but they were able to leverage that pretty well. And they were resistant to the changes uh, to the jailing policies and arrest policies in Chicago that would have followed from the study because of this criticism. So right after that, I was thinking, okay, how can we, you know, without a doubt, essentially, or (laughs) as much doubt as one can eliminate, how can we show that that is in fact not the case? Now, there are a few reasons why this issue of reverse causality, which is to say that the, the what we're looking at is caused by something prior to the jail's contribution, mm-hmm. which multiplies and spreads disease. It's actually, you know, just higher rates in these neighborhoods. Uh, there are a few reasons why that isn't plausible to begin with, which is that nobody is saying um, that the cases just appear in the jails and they didn't come from anywhere else. And the jail is just manufacturing cases out of nowhere. Of course, cases come into the jail from outside. People have been exposed in some other place. 
that when one person goes into the processing spaces of the jail and is standing in a crowd for hours in a closed place with stagnant air with hundreds of other people, and they're infectious and don't probably don't know it, certainly at that time they didn't know it, a lot of other people are going to be infected by the end of those hours of processing time. The point is that cases come in from the outside, they multiply, they go back out. And because people are cycled through jails in the U.S. so quickly, many people who are infected in these scenarios are not going to know, even when you have adequate testing like we do now, because there's an incubation period. You're exposed. You're not going to test positive then when they test you at intake, which is the, the custom now. Um, you're probably not going to test positive the next day, maybe not even the next day. So if you're released within a matter of days and you've only been tested once at intake, you're very likely or it's it's a lot of people are going to be released infectious and not knowing it. So the reverse causality criticism was really kind of missing the mechanism that we were describing, the plausible mechanism we were describing from, from the first. But as you said, this follow-up study, uh, then we were able to get, a few months later, we were able to get um, longitudinal data. And we can show that actually these neighborhoods did not have higher case rates. And even if we control for their case rates uh, before, like progressively, so like if we're looking at, you know, X week and we control for case rates with X minus one week. And we're just now looking at contributions from the jail, not the, the multiplication of cases that are already there. We can show that, that the jail is still very, very clearly strongly associated with increases in, in case rates in these communities. So, yeah, I think the reverse causality should very, um, very clearly be put to rest, in my opinion. Now, one can't entirely eliminate that that criticism without a randomized controlled trial. Right. So you can leverage that criticism against pretty much any observational study. Okay. Statistically, methodologically, yes, that's true. But in reality, is that a legitimate criticism? No, I don't think so. Right. And you do you do note uh, the need at some point possibly or the benefit of an RCT. So thank you. You did. I was going to ask about overcrowding. I think you've already uh, addressed that. That's largely how we get these, as you phrase, uh, epidemiological pumps. Let's go to, uh, let's just speak specifically, although you did make some mention, um, relative to the magnitude of the problem. And this yeah. is, um, so you have you have this cycling effect, and then you have uh, uh, these individuals um, who go back to their community, again, as I intentionally noted in the intro, disproportionately minority populations, and then they go back to their communities, which are majority, not surprisingly, black, et cetera, minority uh, communities. And then since you're examining these by zip code, what 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 are some of the numbers here of the uh, ripple effect? Yeah. I mean, we document in the follow-up study more specifically how the jail see, appears to have been a major driver of the racial disparities in COVID-19 in Chicago, because mm-hmm. that's the data we had. I expect that what we see in Chicago uh, replicate probably replicates to some degree, to a large degree, in many other places in the U.S. It won't be exactly the same dynamics because it has to do with residential segregation, which is particularly stark in Chicago and some other factors. But, yes, everybody knows at this point or should know that the U.S. carceral system disproportionately affects people of color, specifically black, Latinx and indigenous populations in the U.S., um, So in Chicago, about 90% of the people, of the 100,000 plus people who are cycled through Cook County Jail every year are either Black or Latinx. Now, those two populations, demographics, make up about 65% of the population in Chicago. So they are overrepresented in the jail system here. 
They're also treated somewhat differently, it appears. I mean, not officially, um, but for example, when there was some decarceration of the jail, uh, black detainees were released at lower rates than white detainees. We see this across the country. So it's not just that they're disproportionately subjected to the criminal legal system, minorities in the U.S. Mm -hmm. They are also treated differently within it. We've seen this in prosecution practices or, you know, infinite number of studies documenting this kind of fact. Um, Now, nationally in the U.S., I mentioned earlier, 11 million admission release cycles roughly every single year just through jails. Now, a lot of people don't understand, a lot of policymakers, senators, congresspeople in the U.S. don't understand the difference between jails and prisons. Now, jails, prisons, and immigrant detention facilities make up for the large part the carceral system in the U.S. Prisons hold about 1.7 million people, or they had, like, say, about a year ago. Jails hold 600,000 to 700,000 people at any given time. 75% of people in U.S. jails have not been convicted of the crime for which they're being detained. They are there pending trial. They have not been able to post bail, typically, even though the average bail, unpaid bail amount in the U.S. for a federal offense for a felony is, is about is, is less than $10,000. And many people are held at misdemeanors where the bail is actually maybe a matter of hundreds of dollars, but they can't afford to pay. A large proportion of people who are arrested and incarcerated in jails more than one time in a year have incomes less than $10,000 a year. This has a lot to do with homelessness and poverty and petty crime that's associated with this. Um, it's very well documented. The U.S. over relies on the policing and carceral system to deal with problems of, of poverty, of hunger, of housing instability. Um, most people, I mean, this is to me, this was the big takeaway from all this research that I've been trying to do and that others have been doing as well for much longer than I have, is that, yes, during COVID-19, the COVID-19 pandemic, this system has put the entire country at risk because not just uh, people who are incarcerated in jails or prisons or in retention facilities are subjected to, it's not just them who are subjected to enormous risk. Because of the spillover into communities that spills over to the entire country and even beyond our borders, this is a national public health problem that to this day, 18 months into the pandemic in the U.S., is almost entirely neglected by our policymakers. And that is really a shame. There's, there's, I think there's, there's, it's very hard to get good data, but modeling studies in combination with some few empirical studies suggest that millions of cases in U.S. communities are the result of spillover from carceral facilities. Mm-hmm. Um, there, I have a study that's forthcoming that, that documents um, this, I think, uh, in the most robust way that we've seen so far. And yes, it's it's millions of cases could have been prevented without question in the U.S. had we incarcerated at a much lower rate to begin the pandemic or uh, incarcerated, for example, at the rate of pure nations. So this is a population level issue, but it also goes way beyond COVID-19. Because as I mentioned, the Russian case earlier with TB, you know, we have TB in the U.S., not so much. TB, one of the main places for it is our carcerial facilities. But then we also have hepatitis C. We have HIV. We have annual influenza epidemics. We have you know, various respiratory illnesses we don't even think so much about, but they do affect people who are immunocompromised, children, RSV, you know, these other conditions, community-acquired pneumonias. All of these things pass through our carceral facilities, much like COVID-19, a different time frame, different acuity, and then they are multiplied and they are spread back out into communities. How many deaths every single year in the U.S. from infectious diseases we can get into the chronic diseases that are also associated with incarceration and the way that that affects society. But just from infectious diseases, how many deaths every single year of people who have never been incarcerated but are affected by incarceration indirectly uh, owe to this system? Nobody knows, but it's not a small number. 
So this is not just a pandemic issue, although it does put the entire country at enormous pandemic vulnerability. You know, if you recall, at the outset of the pandemic, people were quite confident in the U.S. because we've had these different ranking systems internationally. The U.S. pandemic preparedness was number one in the world. We have the CDC. We have the NIH. We have all these resources. That quickly became a joke because very clearly we do not have a very robust, robust pandemic preparedness system. A huge part of that that still is being neglected by policymakers is the fact that our carceral system is just it's like a pandemic engine, an epidemic engine in wait. It's just waiting to take something in and reproduce it in a kind of factory-like function that then affects the entire country and world. Um, so I really think it's important these studies during COVID-19, my, my studies with Daniel Chen, my co-author and all of this, uh, and other people who are contributing to this, it's really not about just this virus. It's about a structural public health vulnerability in the U.S. that has to be addressed if we're going to be serious about biosecurity, about pandemic preparedness, and just about everyday public health in the U.S. Um, I, I think I've gone on with my monologue enough here. but No, you're, you're, I, I appreciate you're being thorough here, and we're going to move on to this uh, decarceration in a second. But just uh, per my notes, just to uh, reemphasize uh, – you noted a uh, cycling through Cook County Jail in March of 20 accounted for 17% of total cases in major Black and Latinx zip codes and 21% uh, of COVID racial disparities in Chicago in August of 20. Per your point, yeah. you know, you, you I, I will throw into the mix beyond all the disease conditions you mentioned, uh, uh, jails and prisons mag multiplying or contributing to uh, mental uh, mental behavioral health uh, diagnoses. Just to, um, I'll use this opportunity. Five years ago, I actually interviewed Gene Casilla, solitary mm -hmm. Washington. He talked about uh, mental health uh, resulting from uh, widespread use of uh, the solitary confinement practice. Um, yeah. So that you add add that to the mix. Um, relative to criminalizing poverty, I'm glad you used that phrase. I actually, you may know. I actually interviewed the NYU law professor, who's the uh, UN rapporteur on on um, on this subject, uh, Phil uh, Alston, and he did a, a report uh, a year or two ago on extreme poverty in the U.S. and he he discussed this emphatically, uh, where he uh, said what policymakers have done for decades in the U.S. is exactly this criminalized poverty, and this is right. uh, another example thereof. Let's go to uh, decarceration. Um, yeah. Um, you, you discuss this as sort of the obvious, uh, rem, um, immediate emergency remedy here in this instance. I, I'd like you to comment on that. Uh, in your, uh, proceedings, uh, you do mention the Orange County jail case, uh, the yeah. Supreme Court ruled on. So, uh, th this issue has been adjudicated, debated, et cetera. Uh, my general sense is, uh, this, this option or policy option was not, to the extent it could have been exploited. And you do note, and please note the fact that uh, the immediate immediate response to this, of course, is it will create uh, a public safety issue, and that's not the case, as you argue. But if you could uh, add that to uh, your response. Yeah, I mean, this is a really important moment, not for my comments on this, but for this, this issue to be debated honestly in the U.S., because right now you have a surge in crime rhetoric again. You know, Biden came out yesterday, the Biden administration saying we need to really focus on fighting crime, is increasing budgets for police right. departments. And 
you know, Biden has a lot of good intentions. Uh, he was also a major force behind the 1994 crime Absolutely, bill. Absolutely, yes. Which yes. is not the only cause of mass incarceration in the U.S. and hyper-aggressive policing that has a lot of deleterious consequences for our communities, but it was a major cause. And he bears responsibility for that with a lot of other people. And so this is really not a partisan issue in my mind. Both parties have profoundly failed American communities by repeating these lines from criminology and policing rhetoric the idea that you can only make communities safe through policing. Now, what we're talking about in most cases is, you know, crime, quote unquote crime that's very closely associated, as you just mentioned, with poverty, with disillusionment, with an absence of hope, of life opportunities. These are things that are not solved by putting people in jail for a few weeks or putting them in prison for, for two years, five years, or their lifetime, which has been the standard response to the U.S. This is, again, the resurgent response. Look, people were pushing police for, for police reforms, which, in fact, have not actually happened. We haven't actually defunded police departments, etc. There's a rise in crime. After 18 months of economic devastation where the government basically gave out pennies, you know, the, the public support for poor people in the U.S. during the pandemic was very, very inadequate, certainly compared to Western European countries, for example. Mm -hmm. And now there's an increase in, in violent crime in some places. Overall crime is down. Some violent crime has increased in some places. The discourse has now been violent crime is exploding over the entire country, and it's in response to kind of anti-police attitudes. And so now the response from both parties overwhelmingly is let's double down on policing and incarceration. We have done this in this country for over four decades. We are less safe than peer countries. We incarcerate at nearly seven times the average rate of peer nations. We spend about $220 billion a year in punishing our own residents. It does not make communities safe. I, you know, it's not, <laughs> if you just look at the data, it's very hard if you if you have any orientation in relations with the data to maintain this view. Nonetheless, it remains the dominant view. So, uh, yeah, I think it's really important that public health scholars and health policy people try to seize this discourse of public safety, which has been dominated in the U.S. by by policing authorities, police unions, by media that work with them and their access depends upon good, friendly relationships with these people. Marine Dow just had a column last week or two weeks ago with Bill Bratton, who's kind of the, right. the broken window policing right. pioneer in New York, basically just gave her column as a full, full on Bill Bratton opinion piece on how, you know, criticizing the police is counterproductive. We have to get behind American policing, this kind of thing, and you know, holding people accountable is, is bad for communities. <laughs> and it's kind of it's uh, it's laughable, except for my my God. This has profound power in the U.S., this ideological framework. So what's been missing from the public safety discourse are the actual major threats to safety in American communities, which is not they are not primarily from violent crime. They're from poverty. They're from lack of access to mental health care and, and ordinary physical health care. They're from lack of opportunity in relationship to education and employment. These things have huge consequences that we can measure as public health scholars and that severely undermine U.S. public health and public safety. And I'm of two minds. I'm not sure, okay, do we stop using this term public safety because it's been so infected by policing rhetoric and people think of it as only, as public safety only really consisting in crime rates and not these other things, where we don't account for the way that policing and incarceration actually, although there may be some benefits to certain kinds of policing, that overwhelmingly, or I don't know, overwhelmingly, there, there are enormous harms that are inflicted by these systems that are not accounted for in how we measure public safety. So you can just increase policing and incarceration infinitely, 
and it seems to me this is going to look good for public safety. It doesn't work, you know, that we have a, a corrupted kind of system for thinking about this. So do we reclaim this term or do we say this term is is corrupted? Let's let's throw it out. Let's use another term. We use collective safety. We use public health. I don't know exactly. I don't know what the best way to fight against this ideological framework that is hellbent on punitivity and irrational reproduction of harm for communities. I don't know what the best way is, but I think it's really, really important. And that's another reason why I think these studies that I've been doing uh, with my colleague Daniel Chen, why I think they're important in this moment, because they show that these systems are not benign systems. They harm American Mm -hmm. communities at the population level in very serious ways that are, to some degree, quantifiable. I say to some degree, because actually the administrators of these facilities usually don't comply with data requests or don't even know what's going on in their facilities. We have basically no, very little regulation of carceral facilities in the U.S. There's exceptionally poor healthcare. We don't even know how poor it is. We don't have the data on it. Whether one's accredited in these systems, et cetera, is voluntary. It's a really, really horribly run system from the top all the way down to the bottom. Um, But I think to show what I'm trying to call this idea of carceral community epidemiology, the fact of this, that carceral facilities and carceral conditions are always interrelated with the health and safety of communities and not in the way that most Americans assume, which is increase incarceration rates and somehow your safety gets better. No, it doesn't work that way. Even if there is a short-term gain, which in some cases you can see there's a short-term gain in safety in terms of crime rates alone through incarceration, it's incredibly myopic to think that you can just do this forever. You do not lock people up forever, thank God. And when you release people, was subjection to suffering and trauma and poor health and poor health care and all these things that have infinite ripple effects, was that better for safety? No, it wasn't. So we really need to rethink what are the systems by which we ensure public safety in the U.S.? Because it cannot be simply policing and incarceration. In my view, these are overwhelmingly destructive, not productive for safety. So what are the other systems? We have to build them because to a large extent, they don't exist. And when people talk about prison abolition, for example, a lot of people roll their eyes and quickly dismiss this. What are you going to do with all the so-called criminals? Right. But prison abolition is not saying that violence will not continue to be a problem. That crime, although we need to think about what's what's defined as crime and what's not, a lot of white-collar so-called crime, is, or could be called crime, is not called that, where we talk about petty theft by poor people and we you know, instantly label this crime in the U.S. But prison abolition is not saying that crime or violence are going to disappear. What they're saying is that our current systems are not effective ways of ensuring public safety, of protecting communities. We need to think of other systems, and we need to break apart the systems that we have to make space and funding to invent other systems. A lot of other countries around the world have much more effective systems for dealing with the persistent problem, because it will never go away, of violence, of crime. But the reflex response in the U.S. to just send more police, send more people to prison, it doesn't work. It's, it's as I like to think, it's the blue bloods view of the world, the uh, the television. Yeah. <laughs> Some very simplistic yeah. black and white television. And just, it's a very – yes. go ahead. I'm sorry. No, I'll, I'll just say per your uh, – again, back to your proceedings uh, article, I'll just cite here. And this gets at um, a specific – you cite uh, two major studies – largest county jails in the U.S., 42% of those jail, jailed were not convicted for any charges for which they were uh, detained. And then you say, more specifically, at least 39% of those in U.S. prisons, based on studies, there is no public safety justification for their incarceration. So if nothing, yeah. during a pandemic, you would think we'd have more enlightened uh, view, knowing that uh, four out of ten or two out of five, uh, there's no public safety concern 
uh, yeah. or, or being uh, released. Um, so I'm sorry, I interrupted. So go ahead, Eric. No, yeah, thanks for bringing up those statistics. Those are important. They're actually profound underestimates in my view because the, the 39% figure in prisons. So these are people in prisons who have been convicted of crimes. Now, that measurement, that's from the Brennan Center uh, at NYU, that is largely based upon what they're convicted of. Is there uh, a threat of violence associated with this conviction? For 39%, very clearly no. Now, there's a large proportion of people beyond that 39% of the U.S. prison population that do not present a threat to, to safety either. They're at least no, no greater threat to safety than I do or you do probably. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know you personally, but I assume you're not a threat to public safety. Um, and that number is going to be much, much higher than 39%. There's an important piece in Lancet Public Health, I believe, by Nazgul Gandush and a, a bunch of other people. It's on decarceration and reentry. And they address this issue, kind of the excessively long sentences that are used in the U.S. compared to peer nations, for example. And that for a large proportion of these people, like people who are detained, who are imprisoned after the age of 60, the likelihood of recidivism, the likelihood of recidivism with a violent crime, even if they had a violent crime conviction before, is extraordinarily low. It's, you know, it's, it's not, they do not present a higher risk to public safety on average than I do. Um, why should they be incarcerated? But then the, the figure of 42% of people in Miami-Dade and Philadelphia counties in jails who are never convicted of the alleged crimes for which they're detained, you know, so that's 42% of people who, who sh- never convicted, they never should have been in prison probably, or never should have been jailed. But a large proportion of the remaining 58% of people who are convicted are convicted for offenses that do not entail violence or threats to public safety. So, I mean, if you if you take these numbers together and begin to think about the scale of the number of people in the U.S. who are incarcerated without justification for common interest, that actually their incarceration undermines common interest because it costs a lot of money, mm-hmm. it undermines public health, and it's simply just a sadistic system. It's a huge number of people. I, I think we can safely say over a million people in the U.S. who are incarcerated, there is not a rational justification other than just moralistic desires for punishment. There's not a rational justification for their incarceration. And part of why this persists, this is to connect with kind of the point you made before of kind of blue blood perspectives, is that when we talk about public safety, who constitutes the public that we're talking about? Because I live on the south side of Chicago, for example. My interlocutors as an anthropologist here, my friends for many, many years, they're not talking about, you know, when the mayor in Chicago is talking about public safety, she's not talking about the safety of my my friends who live in West Englewood or mm-hmm. uh, in Englewood or in South Shore. We're, we're talking about Lincoln Park. We're talking about the Loop in Chicago. We're right. talking about Manhattan. We're not talking about the Bronx necessarily. You know, so the, the public that is protected by so-called public safety um, policies is a very particular public. And their particular interests are very commonly misrepresented as universal interests. And this is a, this is a big problem. So we don't need to just we need to not just interrogate the term safety. What actually makes up safety? It has to be, entail health. It has to entail income security. These kinds of things, not just crime rates. We also have to interrogate what is the meaning of the public uh, that's being invoked here. Who is actually being served by this? And my argument would be that actually that public that's being served by current public safety rationales is actually pretty much nobody. It's not even the people who think they're being served by it, the people in Wilmette or the fancy northern suburbs in Chicago. Mm-hmm. Their health is is also undermined. The collective productivity and uh, cohesion of our society is undermined by this system. That also negatively affects even the wealthy 
people who live in neighborhoods where incarceration rates are approximately zero. Um, so I, I really think the the public that's served by current public safety policies is essentially nobody. Uh, but some people think they're being served. A lot of other people know they're not being served. We need to think about who constitutes the public, who who counts and who does not. Because we're certainly not including the welfare of incarcerated people when we're talking about two million people when we're talking about public safety. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. So I, I, I'm looking at, again, uh, my highlights of your proceedings article, and, I, and this is the point, although it's per your comments, and the comment you just made, uh, this is uh, understated, uh, but this states um, mass incarceration is neither an effective means of criminal deterrence nor of improving public safety, and that the United States continues to incarcerate well past the point of diminishing returns for deterrent effects. Um, so yeah. <laughs> that's... Again, that's, I mean, that's, that's my, a scholarly that's phrase, uh, uh, way of making the point. Yeah, it, it's the way you say it in the proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. Sciences right. <laughs> well, yeah. Eric, we're, we're at our time, so I appreciate this uh, overview. Um, you know, it, I, I, if we had time, I'd like to go on to uh, some other writings of yours of recent, but I think you would agree. It is amazing, considering the magnitude of this problem, the effect it has on public population health, I was so pleased to see your writing uh, and your recent um, your two pieces in, in health affairs and then this proceedings out recently because this is woefully under underappreciated uh, in policy circles. So I wish you uh, success in, in persisting. Thank you, and I really appreciate you giving me this platform to speak about this. It's a, a pleasure to be here. Thank you again. You have just heard another edition of the Healthcare Policy Podcast, hosted by David Intricasso. To comment on this program or others, to see information about upcoming interviews, to suggest a program topic, or to hear an archive program, please visit our website, thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Thank you for listening, and please listen again soon.